0: Our scripture reading this morning comes from Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11. This can be found on page 1827 in your pew Bibles. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility considering others before, others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to, to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven on and on earth, And under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. The word of the Lord.
1: Thank you, David. We began a series on the book of Philippians earlier in the month of July. And uh, then I was off the pulpit for two weeks, so it's a little hard to keep up, and uh, I'm going to break it to you now. I'm going to be off the pulpit for the next two weeks, so you have to really keep uh, keep this in mind, particularly because um, I'm going to have two sermons on the text that David just read. So this is kind of part one, and then uh, we'll look at part two a little later this month. Um, So bear with us as we go through this series. Friends in Jesus Christ, um, in a wife's diary entry on the day of June 23, this is what she wrote. Tonight, I thought my husband was acting strange. We had made plans to meet at a nice restaurant for dinner. I was shopping with friends all day long, so I thought he was upset at the fact that I was a bit late. But he made no comment on it. Conversation wasn't flowing, so I suggested that we go somewhere quiet so we could talk. He agreed, but he didn't say much. I asked him what was wrong. He said nothing. I asked him if it was my fault that he was so upset. He said he wasn't upset and that it had nothing to do with me and not to worry about it. On the way home, I told him that I loved him. He smiled slightly and kept driving. I cannot explain his behavior. I don't know why he didn't reply, I love you too. When we got home, it felt as if I had lost him completely, as if he wanted nothing to do with me anymore. He just sat there quietly and watched TV, He continued to seem distant and absent. Finally, with silence all around us, I decided to go to bed. About 15 minutes later, he came to bed too, but I still felt that he was distracted and his thoughts were somewhere else. He fell asleep. I cried. I don't know what to do. I'm almost sure that his thoughts are with someone else. My life is a disaster. Here's the husband's diary entry from that same day a four putt. Who four putts? Ah. Sorry, I set you up for that one, didn't I? <laughs> All that goes to say, it's really hard to read someone else's mind, isn't it? In fact, it can be almost dangerous when we try to guess. Your attitude, says Paul, your mind, your mindset should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. This is Paul's instruction to the church, his instruction to all of us. But before we can even ask why, we need to know what that mind of Christ really is. If we're to have the mind of Christ or to share his mind in our minds, we have to know what the mind of Christ really is. But we dare not assume, right? We dare not assume because we'll likely get it wrong. And so Paul tells us, He tells us in this text the very mind of Christ. And that's what I want to explore with you this morning. And it's something that we have to explore before we can even say, why, what does that mean for us? What should we then do? We have to say, what is the mind of Christ? So let's look at that for a few moments this morning. Verse 6, Jesus was in very nature God. There it is. Jesus was God. Now, it's been said that if the Bible were a mountain range, this text would be one of the two or three highest peaks. Because here we are told quite plainly, quite baldly, that Jesus is God. Now, of course, what seems clear to some isn't always clear to others. I mean, just to say that someone is God might not be as clear as you think you might have neighbors or your garbage man who thinks they're god as well they might be followers of i forget her name um, back in my day who basically thought everyone was a god themselves shirley mclean i think it was right so there are all sorts of people who think that they are god so what's so clear about this when paul says jesus is god Well, Paul gets very clear here, very specific. The word that he uses in the Greek here is the word morphe. Now, sadly, that word has actually caused more misunderstanding, probably among us English speakers, than it has understanding. And that's because the word morphe, when it's translated into the English, is often translated with the word form, the English word form. Jesus was in the form of God. Many of our translations put it that way. The trouble with that translation is that the English word form almost always has to do with the outward appearance, with the way something looks. So if you've ever, if you're into science fiction at all, you know, Star Trek or Doctor Who or Terminator 2, things like that, there's always a creature from another planet or another time or another time and another planet or from the spiritual world, but there's always another creature that takes on the form or the appearance of a human, right? They take on that form, but they really are not what they appear to be. And so it's too late when you finally discover that the good policeman is really not a policeman at all, and he's certainly not good. That's the word form in our English. So Jesus being in the form of God really is not all that clear but but really the word that paul uses here morphe is actually the exact opposite of our english translation our english understanding morphe actually has to do with the very essence of something the core of it the very nature of it and that's why our translation says he was in very nature god Paul is telling us that here, Jesus, in his absolute essence, is God. He is nothing less than pure God. He is of the same substance as the Father, as we say later in our confessions. So Jesus has the mind of God. Now what is that mind like? What's it like to have the mind of a God? Well, the Philippians actually were familiar with all sorts of gods, weren't they? Think of just two of them, Alexander the Great, who was the son of Philip, right, who was really the founder of Philippi. So they knew Alexander. Another was Caesar Augustus. These two were human beings, but they were so good at grabbing things, at taking things, that they actually announced themselves to be gods. And that was pretty much the picture of the Philippians in this time, that a god was someone who was always taking and taking whatever they wanted right? They're descendants really of Adam more than descendants of the gods. Remember it was Adam who overreached and tried to take the authority of God for himself. That's what Alexander the Great and Caesar are exactly like but not Jesus. Jesus is distinct from these kinds of gods. Paul goes on Jesus did not consider equality with God Something to be grasped. And the idea here is something to hang on to. Something to retain. Something to keep. Equality with God was his. It was rightfully his. But he did not consider it something to hang on to. And so Paul says he made himself nothing. Nothing. Okay, the Greek heirs, he emptied himself. He let go. He let go of all of his rights, of all of the privileges that came with being God. And then Paul goes further, saying that he took on the very nature of a servant, okay? being made in human likeness. Now, I know we're almost getting lost in the weeds, and this can get a little confusing, but, but try and hang with me here. Okay? A lot of people, when they read those words, they think that Paul is saying that at some point, Jesus must have quit being God. Okay? That he retired from being God, and he became a human instead. That's not Paul's intent. That's not what he's saying. Jesus never ceases to be God. Godness is his nature. It's his essence. All right? Rather, Paul says that as God or continuing to be God, Jesus takes on the very nature of a servant. And again, here we have that word morphe, that word essence. Jesus' essence is a servant. Now now just pause there for a moment and and think about those two things. Jesus in his essence is God, and Jesus in his essence is a servant. And yet those two things are, are in no way in conflict with one another. They don't oppose one another. Probably not something you would have said about Alexander or Caesar. But in Jesus, these two things come together. The essence of God, the essence of a servant. Now let's go on, because in the next line, Paul fleshes out this servant aspect of of the Christ, okay? Okay. And he writes that Jesus was made in human likeness. He was made in human likeness. And he had the appearance of a man. Jesus was the exact representation of a human being. Okay? But Paul, again, gets very precise here. Because he uses a couple of Greek words in this part of the text that actually do mean appearance. That do mean he looked like something. They don't have to do with substance. They don't have to do with essence. They have to do with appearance. But let's not get this wrong, all right? Paul is not saying that Jesus was not fully human or that he was something less than human. What... Paul is saying, and why he's being so precise with his words here, is that Jesus' human nature was slightly different from our human nature in two ways. First way, Jesus was fully human, but he was also fully God. He had two natures. That's not true of us. Jesus was fully God, and fully human. You and I are just fully human. The second way he differed was that Jesus was without sin. Okay? He carried the burden of sin. He suffered the effects of sin, but that sin was ours, not his. Jesus was not a sinner like you and me. And therefore, Paul uses these different words to describe Jesus' humanity. He was utterly and completely like us, but he was more. He was God. Okay? So let's try to nail this down. Jesus is in his essence God. Jesus is in his essence a servant. And his servant nature we see manifested in him taking on a human nature, becoming a slave, becoming someone who was treated as a criminal and put to death On a cross. What I want you to see here is that Godhood and servanthood in Christ are not opposed. Rather, that Godhood implies servanthood. It's because Jesus was in his very essence God that he also became a servant. Let me say that again. It's because Jesus was in His very essence true God that He also became a servant. Jesus poured Himself out for the sake of others because that is exactly what God does. The true God has it in his nature to simply give of himself, to give himself away so that others might thrive, so that others might be filled with blessing and goodness and power and wealth and honor. This is the mind of God. This is the mind of Christ to be a servant and to give himself away so that others might thrive in abundance. Now, I know that's a lot to take in, so let's just ask, is there any example in Scripture that can help us understand this idea a little better? And I think there is. It's the example of marriage, all right? Marriage, if you've ever thought about this, marriage is part of the overarching story of the Bible. The Bible begins with marriage right? Begins with a marriage in Genesis 2 when God forms the woman out of the rib of the man and then he gives her to him as his wife. The Bible begins with marriage and it ends with marriage. In Revelation 21 when the church is presented to Jesus as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband, it begins with marriage, it ends with marriage, and the middle is filled with marriage as well. Right? Throughout the Old Testament, God relates to his people as if they were his spouse. He talks to them as if they were his wife. When they run after other gods, he says that they are committing adultery with those other gods. And it's not just the Old Testament, it's the New Testament as well, right? In Ephesians chapter 5, Paul gives us this beautiful picture of a man and a woman together, or coming together in marriage, in mutual submission. And he says, this is an incredible mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. Christ and the church, the marriage of Christ and the church. Marriage is a big picture theme in Scripture. In fact, marriage and discipleship They go together. They inform one another. If you want to learn what it means to be a disciple, learn more about marriage and vice versa. Let's take a look at that. Think of Genesis 2 for a moment, okay? For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and they will become one flesh. The older translations used to say he must leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. That's marriage. It's about leaving and cleaving, leaving and cleaving. And if you've ever done premarital counseling with me, you know that we talk about this, right? We talk about how marriage partners have to leave their families of origin in order to become A new home in order to cleave well to their spouse they have to leave something behind and what it means to leave is actually that there needs to be a break a cutting off okay it's not just a physical kind of leaving it's an emotional kind of leaving as well our families of origin if you haven't noticed they're incredibly powerful They form us into the human beings that that we are. They shape us. And there are all sorts of good things usually about, about the marriages of our parents, good things that find their way into our own marriages, but there can also be some negative things as well. And if you are to establish a new home, you have to acknowledge those negative things. You have to consciously mark them so that you can break, for, break from them, so that they don't actually become a part of your new relationship. I was just reminded of this a couple of weeks ago when we were on vacation. I didn't pass this by my wife first, so um, brace yourselves. My wife grew up vacationing in, in Door County, uh, usually camping in Peninsula State Park. And she also grew up boating, all right? In fact, They have all sorts of stories in their family about boating together and all the trauma that went along with uh, boating together. Now, why do I mention this? Well, because we were on vacation. As I said, where were we vacationing? In Door County. And one evening, we finally had a little time to take a break, to sit down and relax. Just me and my wife and her parents and And that's just what my family of origin would have done. Let me note that, Okay, We would have sat down and relaxed. But what did we do instead? We decided to go for a boat ride. And what happens on the boat ride? We run out of gas. (laughs) We started paddling. We were spared by the DNR, who towed us all the way into the dock in front of all the people watching, and very kindly not snickering. but I looked at the rest of my family as they were paddling and as I was paddling, as we were getting towed in, as I was getting towed in, and I noticed that they weren't stressed about that at all. I seemed to be the only one stressed about this whole situation, and finally I realized why. This was normal for them. Okay? Now, I get it. It was entirely my fault, all right? I own up to it. I didn't have enough gas in the boat. It was my fault. But it finally dawned on me that I didn't take my own premarital advice, right? I allowed all that stuff to just come right along into our marriage, a boat in particular, okay? It's a lame illustration to get at the point that a good marriage requires leaving. You've got to leave some stuff behind. And that can be a very painful thing. It's not easy. That leaving is not easy, okay? It's more of a tearing apart. Think of the promises we make in a marriage ceremony. Okay, if you have a very traditional ceremony, I'm, I'm very likely to say something like this. Will you love her? and comfort her, honor, and keep her in sickness and in health and forsaking every other. Keep to her only so long as you both shall live. Do you hear that word? Forsake. Forsaking every other. You have to leave it all behind. You have to let it go. Marriage is exclusive. You have to forsake everything else for the sake of your beloved, for the sake of your marriage. Now, this isn't just true for people like me, okay, who kind of jumped from my family of origin right into, right into marriage. It also goes for people who have been single for a, for a long time, right? You know what it's like you develop your own patterns your own routines they become who you are a part of who you are and it's not easy to let those things go is it but i do my grocery shopping on tuesday nights not anymore i wait with my laundry until i run out of underwear not anymore I I like to spend my Saturdays playing Nintendo or watching baseball or going to museums. Not anymore. Okay, we have to break from the past. We have to forsake all of that for the sake of a new relationship. All of that stuff, it's formative stuff. It's powerful stuff. It's, It's the kind of stuff that identifies us, that makes us who we are. And yet, it all has to be left behind. Now, think again of Philippians 2. Jesus, being God, let go of all of it. He didn't hang on, he left. He left his father. He left his home in heaven. He left the perfect familial love of the Trinity. He let go of all of it. Why? For the sake of his bride. William Hendrickson just fleshes out a bit what it is that he left. Okay, just a couple of examples. He gave up his favorable relation to God's law. When Jesus was in heaven, no burden of guilt rested on him. When he came, the burden of all of our guilt rested on him. Jesus gave up riches. Okay? Jesus was, was so poor in his life here on earth, he was constantly borrowing things. Did you ever notice that? He borrowed a place for his birth. He borrowed a house to sleep in. He borrowed a boat to preach from, an animal to ride on, a room for his last supper. And finally, he borrowed a tomb to be buried in. He gave up his glory. Cherubim and seraphim once covered their faces before Jesus. Now people mocked him and spit on him and hit him with their fists. Jesus gave up everything. He gave up himself. He gave up his life. And all of this, he gave up, he forsook it all. He let go of equality with God. Why? For the sake of his bride. Jesus was 100% in, right? He was all in. He was fully committed Jesus took on human nature, all right? He took on flesh. That wasn't just for a little time. That wasn't just for the 30-some years that he lived here on the earth. That was for eternity. Jesus bears our human nature now and forever. He's 100% fully in. This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, he said. This was a fleshly union. This is the mind of Christ. Totally in totally committed. Now let's think about the call to discipleship a moment. What does Jesus call us to do? What did he call you to do? What's he calling you to do right now as his disciple? He calls us to leave. He calls us to leave. Same call that came to Abraham. Abraham, I want you to leave your your home, your family, your country, and go to a place that I will show you. Jesus himself, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters and, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Discipleship requires leaving. We must leave our past. We must leave everything that has shaped and formed us. We must leave the things that we see, give us our identity, that make me who I am. All of it has to be left behind. Disciples leave it all, and they cleave to Jesus exclusively. 100% all in. That's the mind of Christ. Is that your mind? And the question for the day is simply this, friends. Why would we ever do such a thing? Why would anyone leave it all for Jesus? And the answer is love. Jesus' love, the love of a spouse, the love that we were made for. Why would we leave it all? Because He did it first. He did it for you, He did it for me. We love because He first loved us. That's the only reason. It's interesting, when you get to Philippians chapter 3, <clears throat> you find Paul, and Paul is this, you know, he's this educated man, right? He's a, um, he's a student, he's a professional student. He's also a man of zeal and courage and all of it. And you find Paul professing in chapter 3 this raw, unadulterated love for Jesus. He says, there's one thing I want in life. There's just one thing. I want to know Christ. I want to know Jesus. And then he goes on, for whose sake I have lost all things. There it is. That's a disciple. You let it all go for the sake of your beloved. By this time in Paul's life as he's sitting in prison in Rome or in Ephesus wherever he is, there's no more guesswork involved. Paul has read Jesus' diary. He knows it front to back. He knows Jesus' mind, and that mind is love. He did not he, he did not consider equality with God something to keep Rather, he emptied himself, he left it all, even his own life, for my sake, for your sake, for the sake of his bride. That's how much he loves us. And it's only in seeing the mind of Christ that we are actually moved to be his disciples ourselves. And friends, that's enough for today. Has his love moved you to leave everything behind for him? Not just some of it. Not just part of it. All of it. Because that's where discipleship begins. The rest we'll get to next time. Has the mind of Christ become your mind in other ways? Now that you have his mind in your mind, do you act like it? Do you live like he did? Do you live that way, in that power, in that humility? But all of that can wait till next time. What must come first is do you see how much he loves you? And are you ready to leave everything for him? We can't have the mind of Christ in us until we, are, until we know it, until we're convinced of it, till it's not guesswork any longer. But we know the mind of Jesus. Let's bow together in prayer. Lord Jesus, we thank you. And we are in awe of you. In awe of what you would give up. In awe of what you would take on. All for us. All for your church. All for your bride. 100% in. Lord, move us by your Holy Spirit that we may respond to your love with a similar love. A love of the same essence. A love that's 100% in. We can do this only by your grace and only by your strength and power. And so we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.